Hello, Luke. How are you tonight? I'm good. How are you? I'm good too. Here we are again. Here we are again. And we've just got home from the cinema. We have. Uh, And waiting for your meal. (laughs) Yes, which I have really overeaten at this point and I'm feeling quite sick now. Well, I reckon it took so long for them to remember that you were standing there waiting for your meal that I might have forgotten half of what was in this movie that we're about to talk about. I know, but they were like really apologetic and then they gave me like two size servings and I am just someone who eats until there's nothing left in the bag. So now there's there's like three nuggets left. So I'll have those tomorrow. Yeah. You're like a little woodpecker when you get food in front of you, aren't you? <laughs> yes, but, you know, I maintain my beautiful physique somehow. <laughs> um, so we just watched Maria Schrader's brand new film. It has just hit cinemas. It is uh, the biographical drama film She Said about the uncovering by the New York Times of the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Heavy stuff. Heavy stuff indeed. Just so you know, we're going to be getting into uh, some spoilers here. So if you haven't seen the movie yet and you want to, and you absolutely should because it's great, uh, turn it off, off, go see it, come back, we'll be here. I feel like there's been a few movies recently. What was that one? The Post? That <laughs> was like three years ago, four years ago. Yeah, not not necessarily about um, <clears throat> about sexual misconduct, but the it feels like The Post and Spotlight and Bombshell was another one. Mm. Um, probably more closely tied to this one about news reporters uh, kind of in the middle of uncovering something. And and about something kind of very recent, you know, very new history, kind of history we've lived through. Yeah, definitely. So it was interesting to see this on the screen, knowing what's come since, um, since this story was originally published on the New York Times. Yeah, it was pretty eye-opening, wasn't it? Like, it, you know, even though we sort of saw it kind of before, during and after, there was so much I didn't know. And I, I guess the film was really, really good at showing us what happened behind the scene, scenes in terms of the investigation that this paper did and the kinds of challenges they faced. So this film is um, written by a woman based on a book by two women. It's directed by a woman and it primarily stars women. And it's all about women, and it's not just about what happened with the the Weinstein crimes and you know the uh, Me Too movement. It's it seems much bigger than that. It's about women's health issues. It's about women's friendships. It's about motherhood. It's about managing relationships and careers. Um, it felt epic in that way. It seemed to tell the story of just women generally. I loved that about it. That it was bigger than its story. Yeah, so the women in uh, question are Megan Tui and Jodie Cantor, who broke the story. They're played by Kerry Mulligan and Zoe Kazan. Um, Luke, you love Kerry Mulligan. I do. I think she's probably my favourite kind of modern contemporary actress who isn't, you know, over 50. Yeah. What do you love about her so much? I love her face. I love kind of the sleepy quality of her face. I think she's incredibly intelligent and that shines through in her performances. She has this thing in her scenes where she doesn't care if she isn't liked. Yep. She's, she's never kind of playing to the camera or playing to the audience. She's just playing a part. And I like that. I like that I never quite know what she's going to do. She feels unpredictable to me on screen, and that's exciting. She's really good. Um, I really enjoyed her very early on in at Education, mm. which I think was uh, a great, innocent youthful performance of hers 
I haven't seen too... I, I wouldn't say I've seen too much of her. She was great in Shame with Michael Fassbender. But yeah, I've seen her in Shame. I've seen her, obviously, You Showed Me Promising Young Woman because I think you showed everybody in Adelaide <laughs> Promising Young Woman. Yeah, when people met me, they instantly found themselves seated in front of a television watching Promising Young Woman. <laughs> uh, she was in Drive. She was in um, Inside Lewin Davis. Wildlife. Wildlife. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I like about her is that she picks really interesting projects. She's not one of these Marvel cash-in actresses. You know, she really cares about the craft and cares about telling interesting stories. Yeah. Yeah, she does. Why haven't you watched The Dig? Oh, no, I need to, but there's a lot of Kerry Mulligan performances I have yet to catch up on. Uh, I saw a trailer for The Dig and I thought it looked really good, so I had, it's my Netflix watch list. Okay, well, don't watch it without me. <laughs> um, but that's neither here nor there. Zoe Kazan. Who I don't know at all, but wow, she was great. The other lead, she is actually Paul Dano's wife. And oh she, my gosh. She co-wrote Wildlife. Oh, so Carrie Mulligan would have met her at that time, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But they had a very good rapport together on screen. It was very believable. Yeah, she was fantastic, I thought. She was. I thought she did the um, kind of where Carrie Mulligan allowed probably a little more emotion into the performance more often, but she was also the kind of bitey one when it needed to be done. And Zoe Kazan was the more level, ambitious, coming at it from a really innocent place. Kerry Mulligan was hardened and she understood the game better. And she she compartmentalised a little better than Zoe, who was very green and had mm. her full heart into everything that she was doing. Yeah. You know, Carrie Mulligan felt a little bit more like she'd sort of been around the block, understood how everything worked. And and she was almost like it was more in a mentor role, whereas um, Zoe Kazan was in like a discoverer role. Yep, yep. That was sort of their dynamic, and she was sort of teaching Zoe Kazan. I thought that they did a really good job at the start of the movie of making it so that Carrie Mulligan would be really hesitant to come on board with this project because she had just finished covering uh, Donald Trump. Mm. It's Kerry Mulligan who gets the call when she's walking down the street saying, I'm going to rape you, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to dump your body. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah that was hard. That was yeah. rough. And she has, she plays it expressionless, you know, because, you know, what do you expect from this job and going after these people? So instantly you're aware of the implications of going after high-ranking people in positions of power. Mm. And we know that she's about to dive right back into it with this Harvey Weinstein case. And it's just an unfortunate kind of verdict on society that these things happen back to back for someone like that. She was sort of fearless. Mm. She was not intimidated by anybody. Whereas Zoe Kazan was a little bit more, had more trepidation in certain scenes, you know, uh, she was more relatable. Yeah. Because I think <laughs> I feel that way. You know, I, I, I tend to feel if I'm in a room with a lot of smart people, I'm very trying to be on my best game. And, you know, I, 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 I'm nervous. I'm going to make a fool out of myself. Uh, Zoe Kazan, she played the surprise element of it. Whenever something actually went her way, she was so surprised that it had worked. Mm. Um, she played that really well. Uh, Zoe Kazan comes from a like family of kind of Hollywood royalty. Her father wrote Reversal of Fortune. Oh, wow. Um, he also, I think he might have written uh, Fallen, the 1998 film. 
Uh, he wrote Matilda um, with his wife, Robin Swickord, who is Zoe Kazan's mum, and she wrote Little Women, Matilda, Practical Magic, Memoirs of a Geisha, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. She directed the Jane Austen Book Club. She's been nominated for Academy Awards and Golden Globes. So she comes from this family of real royalty. Of course, her grandfather is Elia Kazan. Oh, really? Yeah. That's amazing. I didn't know any of those links, but I love Practical Magic and I loved a lot of those early films you just mentioned. Little Women, she wrote the Gillian Armstrong version of that film. The 1994 version, yes. That's amazing. I like that um, I just gave you all of those names and you, I, I finished with Elia Kazan and then you said, oh, that's amazing. I love Practical <laughs> Magic. <laughs> I'm nothing if not pure trash. <laughs> Could have gone on the waterfront. Nah. <laughs> well, I fucking love on the waterfront. Well, she's she's definitely one to look out for. She's immensely talented. Um, what was your favourite scene of hers, or when did you sort of notice her? Ah, she's she's quite remarkable. There were so many scenes that were great. Every time they met somebody was great. You know that scene that you liked um, over in Wales. With Samantha Morton. It was fantastic. She's getting a lot of praise for that. And actually, that is the most uh, wonderful 10 minutes of the movie. I mean, it's... it's. And actually, I have to say, as good as the two leads were, I thought it really was the supporting characters that kind of were really brilliant. The supporting characters had a little bit more to play with, in a sense, yeah. because the leads had to play their role throughout the entire film. And they had to be kind of reserved in the way that they play it because that's just the nature of a reporter you you get turned down so often that you you can't be hopeful and you can rarely be emotional um and and you have this kind of inbuilt expectation of um somebody turning around to you and saying no or or your newspaper saying hey we've decided to kill the story or you know your lead who's has committed to an entire project your lead lead on the story turning around at the last minute and saying no i'm not going to do that or the lawyers coming in and saying no you're not allowed to do that this quote is wrong can't take take it out i mean there's so many things that could go wrong that it's it's kind of baffling that it ever goes right so much of this film was just about watching these two women take phone calls yeah <laughs> i don't think a better film could have been made about this event in social history and weinstein's crimes it was wonderfully tasteful and intelligent i loved that they never uh recreated the crimes you know you had moments where you saw them young but you never saw them in that room with weinstein giving him a massage and i was so glad it didn't do that i agree with you that there's not many other ways to make this movie but i also feel like that places an a cap on how good the movie can be and i think this film pretty much reached the cap mm. I think so too. But I also don't think it could be any better than it was, which isn't, which is a step below how good other movies can be when they don't have that cap. It had such a wonderful sense of urgency about it. Mm. You know, while you were watching it, you just, you, it was, it was like watching a thriller. And in some ways it was a thriller, but it was just tense and the stakes seemed really high and it sustained that tension so well throughout. Yeah, it, it seemed short for a 129-minute movie. Yeah, it just zaps by. But, I mean, it moves at a clip. And, mm. you know, you're just on this journey with these two women who know that this is a bad guy and who have, you know, all of this kind of off-the-record 
supporting evidence to say that this is going on, that there's a system built around him that protects him and so many abusers, and that this is uh, just, you know, one workplace. But it was interesting, we talked about, like, uh, after the movie about, you know, how at one point Kerry Mulligan... Because Kerry Mulligan doesn't, as you said, she she levels these accusations against Trump in the New York Times, and then that leads to a death threat, and then she goes on maternity leave to have a baby. And um, while uh, after the baby's born, she goes through postpartum depression. And that's only shown in a v- couple of very small scenes. And see, this is another reason why Carrie Mulligan's great, because she had like a 20 second or 30 second scene where she's just saying to her husband that she's not coping. And she looked in that moment fucked and like she mm. had been crying for hours. And it was so believable. And then she has the scene where she goes back to the office and is saying it would help to work. Yeah, and the way that she has to kind of say that to the boss and how hard it is for this character to show vulnerability in that mm. setting. And, you, and you know, she plays that so well. Mm. But then, you know, when she's talking to uh, Zoe, we really should learn these two women's names. But anyway, we'll keep talking. <laughs> we'll keep calling them by the actors' names. Zoe Kazan is Jodie Cantor and Kerry Mulligan is Megan Tui. So um, when Megan says to uh, Jodie... Why should we tell this story? Why should we tell a story about a bunch of privileged actresses um, who went through this? Well, she actually, I mean, she gives a better reason than just saying privileged actresses. She says actresses already have a voice. Yeah, that's right. And it's not until she does the story that she realises they don't have a voice. No. She, She needs to be their voice. The other thing I loved about the movie was the score. I thought it had the most beautiful music in it. And I thought there were two moments where the writing was so good that I kind of was thrilled by it. Mm-hmm. One moment was the moment where Kerry Mulligan talks about why perhaps postpartum depression exists. That maybe, maybe it's a cumulative effect of all this intergenerational trauma. And that when you give birth to a child or to a little girl, um, you understand that all of that trauma is kind of patterned into their DNA and so mm. you go through a kind of grief that you're propagating it. That was just a, like a stunning idea about maybe part of why women go through this and experience this. And another thing that I loved was when the woman said, the woman who um, was going through breast cancer and was one of the victims or survivors, I should say, when she said, he took my voice just when I was finding it. Yeah. Yep, yeah, that was really good. I mean, that's just amazing because she's saying, mm. I was 20, he was 60. You know, I was, I just found something I loved. I was this little kind of country girl from Ireland. And then when she said, you know, it really went into the psychology of sexual assault and made me think about assault in, in like, I felt in a very profound, deep, detailed way, in a way I haven't thought about it because I've never, like, fortunately never been assaulted in that way. Mm. It sort of does for sexual assault what um, Spotlight did for child abuse. Yes, it does. Uh, that that was Jennifer Eel uh, played that character, and she was in films like The King's Speech, Contagion, Zero Dark Thirty, mostly in supporting roles, Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm. The Samantha Morton scene was so important and so stunning because of how she approached it. She was a bit of a bit different from the other survivors. The other survivors told their stories. Um, with a real sense of understanding what they'd lost from the experience. Mm-hmm. And she was just angry. Mm. She was, yeah. at, But the anger had kind of hardened and solidified and become pure 
Like she was able to very logically express her anger and why she felt angry and why that anger was good and right. Mm. And I mean, she just, she just comes into the movie. She just comes in like this crow and then she's just swoops back out and you're kind of left a bit stunned and rattled by everything. The way that she just punches out all her reasons and what she went through and how she feels and what she wants. Mm. Um, It's, it's just a beautiful piece of articulation and she plays it so well. Let's talk a little bit about Harvey Weinstein. Oh, must we? <laughs> um, because uh, one thing that struck me about this movie was, and I mentioned it to you afterwards, was that um, it really shows you the depth of the problem in the, how it implicates companies like Miramax, how it implicates companies like the Weinstein Company. There's a couple of scenes and as you're pointing out pieces of dialogue, there's the one where um, I forget the character's name, but he's sitting there and he says, why are you asking about events from the 90s when he's done so much other stuff so recently? It's chilling. And then that's that scene straight away followed by her being stalked uh, by a car at night. She's walking and a car's kind of just trailing behind her. You think so? Anyway, it's never confirmed. You know, that's that's the thing that stood out for me was how how complicit Miramax was in what Harvey Weinstein did for two decades in the movie business. And Miramax was really just a proxy for any large organization that have hmm. that behave this way because there are structures and laws set up around them to help them do this. Well, that's the other thing. I mean, she's Kerry Mulligan is quizzing um, Harvey Weinstein's spokesperson at one point in an office and she says is it usual for men to make eight to twelve settlements and he says i would say it is yeah and you just know that he's talking about not harvey weinstein but other men that are in the hollywood industry or that are in these positions of power that he knows and he's had dealings with he's just saying yeah this is pretty standard and that's terrifying and and what's scary is that As we speak right now, as you listen to this episode right now, those people are probably still mostly in positions of power doing exactly what they've always done before because people are too scared to talk about it, because nobody's broken open the story yet and said, um, you know, I will protect you, Uh, we just need you to come forward, or because they have NDAs. Yeah. And, you know, once you build a structure and you build a culture, it's very hard to kind of deconstruct those things, you know? Well, they kept saying in this movie that one of the things that they found out was when they left Miramax, everybody in the industry turned around and said, well, why would you leave Harvey? Yeah. So, you know. It's frightening. And the way that they um, feature Weinstein into the film is very interesting because for so long he's talked about without ever being heard or seen. Mm. And then at first he's heard and then he's seen. And I wonder if that tape they played in the middle of the film is a yeah, real tape. it sounded tape. real. It did. It? Mm. And, I mean, the film did that a lot. I mean, you know, you, you hear the voice of Rose McGowan and Gwyneth Paltrow. I, I want to know if it was really those actors who did their voice and played themselves. It wasn't. It wasn't. It was Kelly McQuayle as the voice of Rose McGowan. It says James Austin Johnson as the voice of Donald Trump. Obviously, we know he wouldn't have been playing himself. Uh, and it doesn't say anything about Gwyneth Paltrow here, so you might have to Google that one. Maybe it is her and she asked not to be credited. I don't know. Because mm. Brad Pitt produced it, didn't he? Brad Pitt produced it, yes. But Ashley Judd does play herself. And uh, she recreates a scene where 
she's talking to a reporter from the New York Times uh, to Jody recounting her story and I just was going in my head like it was so meta like yeah. Ashley Judd is playing Ashley Judd recreating an actual conversation she had and then I wondered was this scripted and she did she read from the script or did they just say to her just tell your story you know and tell your story with your words I mean one of the big things of Ashley Judd's storyline in the movie is that she wants to continue working so obviously they went to her and they said Ashley Judd do you want to roll in this movie as Ashley Judd and she said yes I'd love to play Ashley Judd and they went to uh, Rose McGowan and Gwyneth Paltrow and they said no we don't want to do that (laughs) but um, Ashley Judd was actually I mean it was actually so nice to see her playing this role yeah it was so, so nice to see her. It's it's almost, I mean, I can only imagine what that feels like as an actor or an actress to have that kind of vindication. And in some ways, she kind of is the movie, even though she maybe has three or four scenes because she is mm. one of the victims playing herself and she ultimately becomes the one that enables them. Well, she became the face, the face of it, didn't she? Well, I mean, yeah, next to like Rose McGowan, I would say she did. Yes, yeah. Mm. But, you know, she was the person who said, you can put me on the record. Yeah. And so, you know, just it, there's, there is so much owed to having that because they were, they were willing to go to print with the accusations without the name. Yeah. So how do you think a film, because, I mean, we love, like, journalism stories, investigative mm. stories. This is um, a little bit of a yarn. Yeah, uh, it's definitely a yarn. Yeah, it's um, it's also um, a, a procedural film, mm. a workplace film. But how do you think it would stack up against something like All the President's Men? Uh, I, I think All the President's Men has um, a lot more going for it. Um, I think All the President's Men has kind of a style that none of the other movies that deal with the same subject matter really have. I think a lot of the other movies that deal with it are pretty downbeat um whereas all the president's men doesn't give you that impression when you watch it Mm. i think also you know you get these pretty revolutionary films being made in the 70s and all the president's men doesn't feel out of place but you watch a movie like she said you watch a movie like truth or like um breach or the good nurse or the post or you know any number of them i mean you don't look at those and say they're you know, changing the way movies are made or they're part of a group of films that are changing the way movies are made. Whereas All the President's Men didn't seem out of place at the time in amongst all of those movies that were changing the way that movies were made. A lot of people said, oh, I feel un- like it's unsafe to be a man now. Well, it's only unsafe to be a man if you're a c- Yeah, <laughs> Dick. Let's say Dick because that's a bit strong for this podcast. <laughs> um, so, yeah, a- a- whereas I think that All the President's Men is done a- a- more as a-, a thriller than an expose. Also in All the President's Men, um, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman were more adversarial and kind of had to halt, you know, forge a kind of... Uh, grudging admiration and respect for one another throughout the course of the film. So there was also that interplay happening and that wasn't a part of this. This was far more about two women who were kind of united in their crusade. I know, yeah. After that first time that Kerry Mulligan questioned it, that was pretty much the only time she questioned it. Yeah. But also, you know, as two gay men, all the president's men had Robert Redford. (laughs) And this just had Harvey Weinstein (laughs) with his fishy cock. So there were there there was a, a distinct advantage to nineteen seventy six Robert Redford. Yeah. 
<laughs> but um, you know, I got so emotional in this film in parts. You did. I looked over and you were all teared up. Well, in I was teared up in the scene where the where Jodie tears up when um Ashley Judd calls her. Uh, mm. I wondered if you thought perhaps that was overacted, or if you thought it was right at that moment for her to have that reaction. I didn't think any of it was overacted. I thought they were all spot on through the entire movie. Everybody. Mm. I, I can't think of one thing that I would change in terms of acting or, or, or writing. I just think it was a perfectly executed example of what they were going for. For me, it's one of the best films I've seen this year. Yeah, I mean, look, that's probably not saying much because we're both rating it the same and we're both not rating it five stars. So, you know, it, it's a bit of an indictment on how great movies are and how few we've seen from this year yeah uh, but also i don't think if we'd seen many more movies we would have been very impressed by a lot of them well that's terribly cynical damien (laughs) it is but don't we have reason to be yeah i mean most of what's come out that i've i want to see i see so Mm. whether or not i'm i mean we i still want to watch tar there's a few other films that i i haven't seen yet but I mean, we're just coming up now to where they'll start to we'll get an, a, mm. an, a fair idea of what you know the Oscar prestige mm. movies are going to be, and we'll have to see out of those what we're interested in. The Fablemans. The Fableman. <laughs> the new Steven Spielberg film about Steven Spielberg. Oh, and what was with that Tom Hanks trailer we got, where he's playing an old grump? Couldn't they get Bill Murray? Otto, yeah. What, what was with that? That looked terrible. I don't know. I just remember telling, turning to you and saying he is miscast in this film. I know. We, we were in the cinema in front of the screen and I don't think we paid any attention to the second half of that trailer. No. <laughs> it's like, Tom Hanks making racist comments? I don't think I'm into this or can believe it. It's called A Man Called Otto and it is directed by Mark Forster, uh, who did Monsters Ball, Finding Neverland, The Kite Runner. Hmm. World War Z. So what would you rate this out of five? I'm going to go four stars. I just thought it was very strong, very powerful, riveting. Yep, I'm going four stars as well. I thought, yeah, like I said, I think it was a perfect example of what it was trying to do. I think the performances were amazing and they really elevated the um, the movie, which had some pretty standard kind of subject matter, but it was told really well. One thing that it also did that I'm really glad it did is it resisted a lot of the woke rhetoric and woke words. You know, it told this story without getting bound up in all of that mm. and kind of being too left-leaning or, or over-politicizing the issue. Yeah. It, it just told the story. It didn't need any of that. You know, the wrongdoing was self-evident. It just needed to tell the story in a lucid way. It was it, We basically, you just watch a bunch of really intelligent people fighting a very difficult fight and overcoming all the obstacles and what's better than that that's what movies were made for and and knowing watching it knowing the impact that it had yeah living living you know on the other side of it yeah and then going and seeing well this is how this is how the battle was fought and won yeah and and knowing that this particular battle opened up the doors for us to have that conversation and to to realize you know what was going on in these industries i mean you and i don't know we don't work in hollywood we don't live in hollywood no it was also really nice to go into a movie that was about women and that celebrated women and and showed women and heard women like you know it was it was a pleasure on on that level you know i remember a time in cinema where you just never got that yeah absolutely you know, they, the women were always, you know, on the phone in five scenes talking to the hero who was, you know, getting to do all the, the cool stuff or survive or whatever. Mm. 
thank God that we've now come around to this place where we can see people of different color and of different genders actually in the driver's seat. Mm. I love that. Yeah, I agree. Alrighty. Well, what are you doing now? Pokemon? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go and play Pokemon Scarlet, which dropped today. Oh, who's your favorite Pokemon? Ever. I, I don't know. Who's your favorite character Pokemon ever? I don't know. Bill Sprout. Why? Do you have one for this week? Yeah, it's been my favorite since um, it was like a year and a half, almost two years ago. I caught a shiny one in Pokemon Go and I just fell in love with it. It's been my buddy in Pokemon Go since then. And it's, you know, just a first stage of a three stage evolution. It's a lot of fun. I just really like him. So what? He's got two more evolutions to go. Bell Sprout. Yeah, he then becomes a, um, a Weeping Bell and then a Victory Bell. Do you know what he's going to look like? Yeah, it's, this is years ago, Luke. These were released 30 years ago. Okay, well, I've lost interest. So, yeah, I know. But I'm happy for you. Who's your favourite Pokemon? Um, Pikachu. Yeah. Is that a, is that a Pokemon? Yeah. Ah, yeah. great. I yeah. thought so. <laughs> okay, I'll uh, catch you later then. Okay, bye. Bye.